What's up, patrons? We are back with another episode of The Shock of the New. We've had to postpone some of the Fukuyama stuff until John has completed more of his studies. So hopefully you'll we'll get back to that deeper into the fall, maybe early winter, but we are going to finish that book. Today, I have got Josh here, and we are doing our final episode of Robert Hughes' The Shock of the New, which was... You sort of like the perfect conclusion, I thought. Yeah, very excited about this because a lot of the strands that seemed like they went off into the ether and I couldn't get any, like, make them cohere into the narrative were, like, very elegantly brought into the whole thing together. And I was like, oh, that is incredibly satisfying. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was really cool. So this one is called The Future That Was. And it's mostly i thought it's it's really about the art market and museums and it ties the rest of these like what seemed like you know sort of far field strands together in basically real estate and capital <laughs> like uh-huh. that's really yeah. you know what's happening here so yeah. it opens with that guy the artist what is his name michael heiser yeah his uh, like weird installation out in the middle of nowhere called complex one and heiser's rationale for this was like well you can't put it in a museum you can't really like own it like only a few people can ever visit it and there's something it's like a frictive install outpost against the art market and the museum and hughes Mm -hmm. takes that as a jumping off point to talk about basically what happens in post-modernity to the idea of the modern and to the idea of art itself. And it's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ends on a, well, he ended on a similarly dark note that the first couple episodes ended on, which is the Mm -hmm. sort of capacity of art to affect life really, Mm -hmm. or the loss of art's power to affect life. So the question I had, I was very interested. So he traces that he goes back into the mid 19th century with the creation of the avant-garde mm-hmm. in the salons of Europe. And so like the rising bourgeoisie in this sort of like new, you know, cap- fully capitalistic economy, like the feudal systems almost completely demolished at this point. And so the art market becomes the salons and any, the salons are very open and anyone can go and present an artwork of some kind. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole galaxy of tastemakers, basically like critics and dealers Mm -hmm. who come together to basically, you know, inform the bourgeoisie who are attending these salons to see things that they want to maybe buy for their own purposes. What is good? Mm -hmm. They have to be educated about what's good. And then you have Corbet in the introduction of the avant-garde, which is, I thought that was a really interesting section where they talked about the avant-garde, the myth of the avant-garde versus the reality of it. And the myth being that the avant-garde is, you know, introducing entirely separate, like orthogonally directed things into the art world Mm -hmm. in order to upend it and overturn it and really the reality is much more like, as that one interviewee puts it, it's a family dispute, where the, like a generational family dispute, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where the upcoming generation shocks the parents, but ultimately, once the parents leave the scene, gets the inheritance, 
and then the yeah. next banner shocks them, right? And I was trying to in this episode. So he goes from the 19th century avant-garde to into the 20th century, and some of those evolutions and some of the like sort of minor movements that kind of pop up within that. And then the total dissolution of the avant-garde and how it gets submerged into art as commerce, mm. and, and which ultimately destroys not only the avant-garde, but art in general. And I was trying to pin that down. I rewatched it and I still don't have a good connective narrative for how exactly he thinks that happened. But he basically gets to this early 60s where he says that the markets in art basically completely subsume like the, the the act of criticism and the act of takes making on the part of the salon owners who are now gallery owners and the discussion about worth, monetary worth kind of completely overwhelms the artwork. It Im becomes impossible to discuss the value of an artwork without discussing its worth. Right, yeah. And I mean, I, I also, and he also brings up this thing about like what art museums do the urban renewal that they bring in and the galleries that get installed adjacent yeah, to them. And he has this right. totally brutal line where he talks about like what this museum in New York was like before it had gotten developed and it's quiet. There are like two Italian bars and not a lot else. And now there's tons of restaurants yeah. and like a hundred galleries. And he goes, you know, and when dentists from New Jersey want to take their Gucci loafers <laughs> for a walk, <laughs> Amongst the bubble-topped buses, it is definitely, you know, not a yeah. quiet place to be. And I was just like, fuck, dude. Um. Yeah. yeah. So savage. Yeah, he's talking about Soho in New yeah, York. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, even this is 1980 or 1981. So even by then had become like a dead letter as far as, Yeah, know, exactly. Yeah. So I think to me, like sort of that, how that strand, it doesn't get totally put together, like the real mechanism doesn't work. But like mm -hmm. along with the rise of the art market, he talks about the rise of the modernist museum mm -hmm. and that those two things work in tandem and that they're really the project. They're an American project. Um, mm -hmm. He seems to argue basically done by our early 20th century business magnates like you know, Carnegie, Mellon, et cetera, et cetera, who invest in these things. And by the middle of the 20th century, modernism is starting to be over as a movement, which means it is ripe for history. And mm -hmm. a whole new slate of tastemakers and critics come in and become a part of the boards of these museums. And either they're built, like, as he says, art bunkers, uh, you know, they're, they're modernist in themselves or they feature a lot of modern art and diffuse all of the ideologies and tensions between them. He says, you know, it is, he says something like crazy, like the museum is less like an articulated tomb and mm -hmm. more like a convenience store or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> you know, he's got one of those great like little lines about it. And so I think like what he's looking at is that like, these things basically just become holders for different wealth criminals at about the same time they lose their social power at all, mm -hmm. you know, by becoming historical objects. So it's only, you know, once, once the storm has passed, you know, that these things start to happen. 
And that that is like when we start to see things like performance art, mm-hmm. which tries to, you know, go beyond the art market or the idea of the gallery and these performances only exist on film or in a few photos you don't really see the whole thing you know he he looks at a few people i was it was sort of he looked at some people who i thought were this one guy in particular who's basically like fake drowning himself on camera you know and i was like this is like pretty boring in terms of like what the extremes like when i think of the extremes of modern art i think of or performance art i think of like marina abramovich when she was really young and she does stuff like put a gun and axe like scissors and all these things on a table and just stands naked in front of the audience and like lets them do what they want Mm -hmm. you know and the performance ends when somebody picks up the gun and puts to her head (laughs) and they're like okay (laughs) like we need to we need to edit this you know or we need to end this or you know i've talked about him before chris burden doing the thing where he's a worm on glass and then took out ad space on California television for four seconds of him rolling on it. You know, like though, I think those are better representations, but he sees them sort of as the inheritors of the impressionists that they're trying to capture this mood, this, this moment, you know, the expressionists. expressionists, Sorry. yeah. Yeah. But of course the vehicle is themselves. Right. Because they're also in the bind of having to, what they're trying to do formally is create a decommodified uh, art object. Mm-hmm. So they ha- they 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 have to remove it from the realm of commerce mm-hmm. in order to like effectively like sidestep the whole machinery of that and not get put up into an like to have an authentic expression. Because the expression can always be questioned if it's like, if it's a painting that can be bought and sold, then you can be doing it for the market. So you have, so you have to find a form like putting yourself in a pool and try and drown yourself or something that can't be sold, Mm -hmm. but then, but expresses something and has some original, but because of that, it limits itself to expressionism. Like there's only emotional and effective. There can't be right. any, there can't be. So he goes into this entire thing about, he goes like way back to the 15th century. Yeah. About, yeah. He talks about, and that was a wild jump, but he talks about the genesis of art, European art, at least being educative, right? Like it had a pedagogic function in society because most people were illiterate and images Mm -hmm. communicate even more than sculpture does, but they both communicate things about, you know, what your value system is, what what is considered virtuous and what is considered vice and, and how you should feel about these things. And because there was no other way to communicate that, that was the dominant mode. And then sort of in the 19th century in his discussion of the avant-garde and the bourgeois salons you get this turn where now art is becoming something for the reflection of the self it's not a public communal act it's not it's not demonstrating anything about the society or the polity or any sort of collectivity at all it's just for the consumption of the individual and so you do get the turn that is sort of where he sees the sort of genesis of modernism which is really sort of this inward turn and he has a very brief section where he shows like some propaganda art from 
you know, the Nazis and the Stalinists and the Maoists. Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of like classic early 20th century social realism art, which is like not very interesting artistically, but is very moving emotionally in the sense that it's like involves action and mm-hmm. movement. And and then he contrasts that with the, the gallery of minimalism. And it, that was another very savage little aside that I loved, which is like the, the boredom of the minimalist project <laughs> contrasted with like the activity but but when you go to a gallery and it's like a bunch of bricks on the floor or a bunch of plywood boxes on the wall and you're just sort of left with yourself and there's it has no commentary on any sort of collective entity and so and then it gets pushed even out of the gallery into the swimming pool i guess yeah <laughs> into the surface of glass because the performance artists have to are still trying to find an idiom where art does have some function that affects the viewer and changes the viewer, right, in mm-hmm. some way. And that's the only thing they're left with, but then ultimately it becomes kind of hollow. He does give a lot of, seems to have a lot of respect for Joseph Boys. Boys, mm-hmm. not exactly sure how to pronounce it, the German artist who did sort of installation art and took a lot of really sort of repulsive objects of German history and sort of assembled mm-hmm. them in sort of installation collages. But again, it was so idiosyncratic like to the German historical experience that it couldn't be replicated as a school or as a movement. Mm-hmm. Like it was just purely the product of Boys's idiosyncratic concerns, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then it all just kind of fizzles out and to ineffectual. Yeah, wherever we are now. I mean, I think that there's something to that, right? In terms of like that, I was reminded when he was talking about that of McIntyre's talking about the, there's no way to really set out the different, like decide on the difference between whether you're going to live in a Nozickian or a Rawlsian society, other than like emotionally blackmailing people, (laughs) agreeing which one is the morally correct one, Um, (laughs) right? Uh, With with competing trolley problems. (laughs) Right, the competing trolley problems, yeah. Like with the thing that Hughes brings up of the the downfall of sort of the, the pedagogic element of art and 